Welcome to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Today's show is brought to you by MD Hearing. I'm Paul Mogulzang, and you're listening to some post-bop jazz, the style of music played by jazz impresario and jazz vibraphonist turned funk and R&B icon Roy Ayers. Roy Ayers, music and jazz factor into our show prominently today because we are joined in just a moment by Nabil Ayers, son of Roy Ayers and Nabil's mother, Louise Broffman, who met Roy in 1970 and soon asked him to have a child with an understanding. The musician would never have to father the boy emotionally or financially. That's the story of our guest today, Nabil Ayers, the son of famed musician Roy Ayers. He'll join us to explore their unusual relationship, which is documented in his new memoir, My Life in Sunshine by Nabil Ayers. Generously, Nabil Ayers has offered a reading to our Not Old Better Show audience, and let's listen to Nabil read from his new memoir, My Life in Sunshine, and his straight out of Compton experience with his dad and his father's hit song, his 1976 hit, Everybody Loves the Sunshine. Straight out of Compton. When I see a movie theater advertising straight out of Compton, I know how I'm about to spend the next two hours. What better setting, I think, to watch a blockbuster about the L.A. rap group N.W.A. than this, the city from which it emerged. It is the summer of 2015, and I am in Los Angeles for the FYF Music Festival, where backstage I am repeatedly mistaken for a newly famous director who has made music videos for Kendrick Lamar, Kanye West, and Frank Ocean, and goes simply by his first name, Nabil. When I am introduced to some people, it's telling to hear their voices suddenly become more hip-hop, attempting to drop a bit of street into their words, an affectation they adopt only when they think they're meeting the rap video director. Not that Nabil always elicits a humble apology. People aren't aware that even though he has made videos for hugely famous Black artists, Nabil is half white and half Iranian, and looks much more white than I do. While I was hoping to spend today at the festival with the artists I work with, instead, I slowly walk around the newly revitalized downtown Los Angeles, recovering from a terrible case of food poisoning. The thought of seeing straight out of Compton in a comfortable, air-conditioned theater is much more appealing than the sensory overload of a crowded music festival. I force down the rest of my banana, guzzle my remaining seltzer, and still feeling weak, buy a ticket to the matinee. Compton begins with a bang. In five fast minutes, the Los Angeles police destroy a drug house. Bullets and expletives fly, vicious dogs bark, and armored vehicles smash through residential walls like they're made of paper. And I'm completely sucked in, happy to have my mind numbed by Hollywood action, even if the portrayal is devastatingly true to life. The bombastic opening scene ends, and the ensuing silence is broken by a piano sound, followed by an unmistakably familiar lazy synthesizer melody. My pulse suddenly feels very present in my body. The song's patient, buoyant pace drives the camera's slow movement, which reveals a bedroom adorned with posters, records, DJ gear, and eventually a teenage boy lying down with his eyes closed and headphones wrapped around his head. The character, meant to be NWA founder and producer, Dr. Dre, wears a Los Angeles Dodgers jersey and hat as he subconsciously airplays the piano, the congas, and the synthesizer along with the song. 
The overhead shot shows a record spinning with a legible Polydor label at its center. The scene, which contains no dialogue, does everything to convey that Dre is lost in the music. The camera closes in on Dre, surrounded by album jackets, and I brace myself, knowing what I'm about to see. And there it is. One album, standing apart with its white border. A man in a tight yellow t-shirt, a beard, and an afro stands against a bright yellow background. His hand rests confidently on his hip, and he smiles as he looks off camera, radiating casual conviction. I can't read the album title, but I don't need to. I already know the man on the cover. The music is so loud that I physically feel it in my chest and ass. The lyrics offer the first voices in the scene. My life, my life, my life, my life in the sunshine blasts from the modern theater speakers and the chorus of male and female voices further shakes my weakened constitution. I am alone in a dark movie theater, 3000 miles from home, feeling skinny and sick and completely caught off guard by the most famous song by my father, Roy Ayers. Everybody Loves the Sunshine was a moderate hit when it was first released in 1976, but it's grown over time. It's been sampled more than 100 times by various artists, including Mary J. Blige, Common, J. Cole, Tupac, Snoop Dogg, and Black Eyed Peas. It's been covered by D'Angelo and Chibomato, spanning decades and constantly refreshing itself into modern context. I've heard it in many different iterations over the years, a perennial persistent reminder of my otherwise absent father. After one very long minute of music, Dre's mother surprises him by turning off the record, which snaps him out of his meditative state. My chest feels hot and my breath is short. My first reaction is to sink into my cushy chair and look around the theater to see if anyone is looking at me. Is this what it would feel like to run into him? I wonder. I'd last seen my father nine years earlier when I was 34, but that had been planned. A lunch in Seattle, my first ever meeting with him as an adult. The time before that, when I was 11, I had no idea who he even was. Since moving back to New York City, where he lives, I'm always slightly subconsciously on guard, ready to run into him. But I definitely wasn't expecting it in a dark movie theater in Los Angeles while getting over food poisoning. Though my father and I live in the same city and are both in the music business, our paths have never crossed in the seven years that I've lived in New York. Occasionally, someone asks me how he's doing. It surprises me every time. And I usually respond with something like, you'd probably know better than I would, which feels confrontational and often leads me to quickly offer a slightly apologetic, less biting explanation that he's never been a presence in my life. How, I wonder, did a hippie child in New York City who never knew his father become a grown man who still didn't know his father, but encountered his music regularly? Were moments like these truly coincidental? Or had my father's DNA guided me into a life of music and ultimately to the places where his presence caught me off guard? It's been over a year since I last tried to contact my father. And though I was unsuccessful, I decide it's time for another try. I know he won't become the father I'd never had, but maybe he can become the father I meet for lunch once or twice a year. The father who tells me about his life and my family history. The father who texts me each year on my birthday. He might not respond, but even if my father ignores me, I will have tried. Little do I know that in that moment, the impact of that minute in the theater, the intensity of hearing my father's music, my music in a public place 
through huge speakers and staring at his picture on a giant screen will be the catalyst that opens up two centuries of perspective on my family. That, of course, is our guest today, U.S. General Manager for Record Label 4AD musician, writer, and now a new job title, author of the wonderful new book, My Life in the Sunshine. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast, author Nabil Ayers. Nabil Ayers, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. So nice to talk with you today, Nabil Ayers. We will, of course, be talking about your new book, My Life in the Sunshine, your memoir. Great book. I'm really excited for this conversation, but I would just wish you and yours the very best. Hope all's well. Hope everybody's doing well today. Well, we're all okay. Getting through, trying to make the best of everything. Yeah. Thanks for graciously, generously reading from your new book, My Life in the Sunshine, to us today. We appreciate that. The, the book is wonderful. But I want to start by asking you a question. It has to do with your job at 4AD because right. you're certainly a creative person, but you've got this business side to you, too. And I've always found that fascinating. My right, wife right. is a former ballet dancer, choreographer. Now she owns her own ballet studio. But... She still choreographs, so she's got that artistic side, but she's running a business, and this right brain, left brain thing is really interesting to me. You seem to be enjoying all that. It maybe is a bit of a dichotomy, <laughs> but life is good for you right now, and Thank I wonder, you. how did you get here? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's always existed, the, the pull toward both sides. I think, unlike me, I think there are lots of musicians who end up in the music business, and, and that's great. There's nothing wrong with that, but I think it's common to you know, be someone who plays in a band, gradually learn about it, gradually pick up an interest in it. And if you're lucky, you know, in your thirties, you make a career change and get a job at a record company or Spotify or Apple or something like that. But I, um, that wasn't me. I always knew, I always understood that the business part existed. I can't say I always got it, but when I was, when my uncle bought me a drum set, when I was two and a half, I've played music and love music for literally as long as I can remember. So that just always been there. And then I remember looking at our record collection when I was five years old and noticing, oh, interesting. These two records both have the same Epic Records logo on the back. I wonder what that means. I, so obviously, I didn't know what it meant when I was five or six or seven, but I knew it meant something. And I knew that somehow those two bands had something in common. So it was always there. And I was always trying to... When I was playing music, there's a story in the book about me being eight or nine and, and starting a band with some friends. And we put on a show in our living room and we charged a dollar at the door. And we, I made a flyer and put it up at the laundromat. And some people came and after the concert, we sat around and split the money. And that is the music business. It's that, you know, it can become more complicated, but in, in the most simple terms, that was it. And so I always... I always knew that and I always wanted to be part of it. I wasn't the guy who, no, oh, I just want to play drums. You deal with the money. I was, I was the opposite. I wanted to play drums and I wanted to deal with the money. So I think throughout my life, I've tried to always do both. Sometimes maybe to the depth, you know, it's really hard to be really good at two things. And I think I obviously went eventually completely into the business side. And I'll always wonder if I had had no interest in business or spent no time on it, if I would have been a better and or more successful musician. And I, I hope that would have been the case, but, um, but I'm really happy doing what I'm doing and I still get to work with a lot of artists and it feels creative to, to a degree, not, not the same as playing, but I've been very lucky. Lucky. Yes. But 
hard work too. And, and you know, life just takes its its twists and turns. I, I got to tell you, I found a couple of great pictures of you uh, uh, online uh, as, a, as a young boy with uh, a yeah. Kiss t-shirt. Love that one. And a Def Leppard t-shirt. Love that one, too. I, and, and in honor of that, I'm wearing my Grand <laughs> Funk Railroad That's a great shirt. Today. Wow. You can, you can like kind of see that in the, in the picture. I'll put, a, I'll put an image of that up on, online for all the audience sleeves. to see since we're just audio today. But wow. yeah, yeah, I know. Mark Donnan. Yep. I I actually went to the Cow Palace mm-hmm. and saw that concert. Yeah, I just the, the, you know those are just those are just fun things, fun times. And so I I wanted you to get a get a glimpse of my uh, my enjoyment, my love of music too. And I I also right. love names. I'm always interested mm-hmm. in you know others' names. And and with a name like Vogelsang, which happens to mean bird song in in Dutch, uh, maybe tell us what your first name means. I, I think it's a beautiful name. I have it. It means noble, learned, and generous which is pretty, pretty heavy and a lot to live up to, but, but I've always liked, but, but it's, it's so interesting for me because my father's black and I've, I've never known my father, which is a lot of what this book is about. My mother is white. Um, and I grew up with my mother and my uncle who I'm still very close with my mother's younger brother. And they were both, um, raised Jewish, but became very interested in the Baha'i faith when they were in their late teens, early twenties in New York city. And so Nabil is, well, I don't know if it's a Baha'i name, but I am named after a Baha'i named Nabil, who um, who sort of chronicled the early days of the religion in the 1800s. My uncle just really loved this book that's called Nabil's Narrative um, and loved everything about this guy and what the, the name meant. And so he actually suggested to my mother that she named me Nabil, and she did. And I've, I've always liked it, even though it's it's hard every day. I mean, I give a fake name when I go to Starbucks so I can get my coffee without <laughs> having to spell it or talk about it. But but that doesn't mean I don't like it. That's just me trying to get through life faster. But um, but I love it. But it, it confuses people because I already get the kind of what race are you either look or question all the time. And the name just throws people off even more because it, you know, where are you from when they hear my name? And I say New York and they say, no, no, but where are you from? And I say New York, like I said, you know, kind of make people ask the question they want to ask. But yeah, that, yeah. that is that's a nice name. I, I love the definition. Thanks very much Thank for you. sharing all that with us. Yeah, with a name like Vogelsang, of course, it means bird song. Oh. I've always tried to just shorten that, you know, get through life a little more efficiently just to Paul. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> right. I, I, you know, what I wanted to ask you about, though, too, there are lots of these parental familial paths that have been crossed by you. Right. And although you didn't know your dad well, you had these intersections in life, um, of course, through music and your father uh, your mom uh, has an MBA and she's very much an entrepreneur, um, both mom and dad, a mixed mm. race, you know, blending a variety of music styles, jazz, rock, new waves. Then your mom's brother is a musician. And again, in your, your excellent book, uh, of course, My Life in the Sunshine, just my audience is going to love this. Thank you. Uh, you write both sides have contributed equally. Both sides of the family have contributed equally. And then you say, inheritance aside, is Roy my family? Mm-hmm. And I just think this, uh, you know, this song, everybody loves the sunshine straight out of Compton, uh, you know, all of those parallels that you talk about uh, in your reading with us today. What What is the meaning of family to you? Yeah, I mean, something different than it did a few years ago before I <laughs> sort of jumped into this adventure. I mean, what was what was so fascinating about 
writing my life story, which is arrogant as that sounds, that's really what this is. It starts the moment my mother meets my father and it ends about a year and a half ago. So that's what it is. Um, but I learned so much about myself and the the family element is huge because like I said, I've never known my father, always known a ton about my mother. And actually, while I was writing the book, a big part of the process was interviewing my mother and my uncle and sort of thinking about everything, the record stores I owned, the bands I played in the last 40 something years. But as I was doing that and trying to write about what happened 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, other things were happening in real time. And I was, you know, meeting my aunt, my father's sister, who I didn't even know existed and she didn't know I existed. And suddenly we're at a cemetery in Los Angeles at my grandparents' grave with her, their daughter, and she's talking to them and introducing me. And I'm going home and writing about this for the same book that I'm, you know, that was the day before had been writing about something that happened 30 years ago. So all of this sort of came together in the craziest way where the, the big takeaway for me absolutely was that family is what you make it. And there are people that I don't know if I'm related to, that I feel extremely close to now. And there are people that I know I'm related to that I don't feel close to at all. And it's still sort of a question mark, but it's definitely open to interpretation, I think, in a great way. I want to talk for just a minute or two about your time in Salt Lake City, because that was a time that your mom had to move there for business. She was transferred there. It was a little bit of an upheaval. And while it wasn't necessarily, um, I, you know, uh, just like um, your your time in New York City, it was an interesting time for you. You learned quite a bit. You had a, a friend buy you some concert tickets. You <laughs> yeah. went to some events. You ultimately, you know, kind of found a place there. But it was an interesting time, too. So maybe give us a sense as to uh, what that meant to you. I loved it. And I, I spend a lot of time defending Salt Lake. Um, we moved there because <laughs> people are always like, what? Oh, my, that must have been awful. That's always the kind of response. But we moved there from from Greenwich Village in New York City when I was 10 to Salt Lake City, which is obviously a huge cultural shift. Um, and my biggest worry wasn't, oh, I'm, you know, I'm half black and I've got a single mom and we don't have a lot of money. That's going to be hard. And that those were all things I thought about. But my biggest worry was, am I going to be able to play music? Am I going to be able to buy records? And am I going to be able to see all the bands that I love? And what ended up happening was that all those things actually got better and easier in Salt Lake because you could just go to a concert. They weren't sold out. They weren't as expensive as really. And, and we met tons of these bands. We'd go, you mentioned Def Leppard, my mom. And I would just like go hang out by the stage door and wait for them to show up and talk to them for a while. It was really weird. Had this incredible access and, and felt way more musical. Um, and I loved Salt Lake and, and people were very open and accepting. And I didn't, you know, I, I feel like that's definitely the first place that I felt like I was different, but I didn't feel like that was a huge, a huge gap or a huge divide. I still had lots of friends and had a great seven years. I mean, I graduated from high school there. Hi, it's Paul. We'll be right back with our excellent interview with Nabil Ayers. I'm so pleased to be talking to Nabil Ayers today. And I'm so pleased with our sponsor, MD Hearing Aid. It's when I think about hearing, you know, the act of hearing someone talk that makes me cross. This exact thing happened just the other night while out to dinner with Gretchen. We were at a loud restaurant and I could not hear our dinner companions. Drove me nuts. Not hearing conversation is a wet blanket 
on a great evening. Like many in our Not Old Better Show audience, hearing is crucial. Experts, as a matter of fact, say that hearing loss leads to loss of socialization, something we talk about all the time here on the Not Old Better Show. My dad lost his hearing, and it was painful for all of us, but mainly him. He bought hearing aids, paid a lot of money for them, and wasn't satisfied, which led to him becoming very isolated. A lot of people buy hearing aids, and as a matter of fact, did you know that 9 out of 10 people still buy hearing aids from clinics and pay $5,000 plus, even though much more affordable options exist? That's where our sponsor, MD Hearing Aid, comes in you got to check out MD Hearing Aid. MD Hearing Aid is an FDA-registered, rechargeable hearing aid that costs a fraction of what typical hearing aids cost. MD Hearing Aid's Volt Plus model costs over 80% less than clinic hearing aids. Hearing aids require clinic-level care for the best results. Clinic-level care comes from licensed hearing professionals. MD Hearing Aid brings clinic-level care right to you via telemedicine from doctors and licensed hearing professionals. MD Hearing Aid was founded by an ENT surgeon who saw how many of his patients needed hearing aids but couldn't afford them. He made it his mission to develop a quality hearing aid that anyone could afford. If you forget to take your hearing aids off in the shower, not to worry. The Volt Plus is water resistant in up to three feet of water. Plus, it's rechargeable with battery life that lasts up to 30 hours. So how do they make their hearing aids for a fraction of the cost for a clinic level hearing aid? Since about 95% of the people who need a hearing aid only require a few settings, MD Hearing Aid simplified the need for certain components not needed by most people. Plus, they cut out the price hiking middleman. MD Hearing Aid has brought affordable hearing to over 600,000 satisfied customers. You in the Not Old Better Show audience can be one of them, and they offer right now to our Not Old Better Show audience a 45-day risk-free trial with a 100% money-back guarantee so you can buy with confidence. So, get clinic-level care for 80% less with MD Hearing Aid. Go to mdhearingaid.com, use the promo code NOB to get their new buy one, get one, $149 each when you buy a pair deal. Plus, they are adding a free extra charging case, which is a $100 value. This is awesome. This is just for listeners of the Not Old Better Show. So head to mdhearing.com and use our promo code NOB and get their new buy one, get one, $149 each when you buy a pair deal. I know you can hear me. I just know it. But in case, check out MD Hearing Aid and support our sponsor. Thanks, everybody. And now back to our wonderful interview with author Nabil Ayers, where we can listen and hear everything he's got to say. We're back with Nabil Ayers. Nabil Ayers is the U.S. General Manager for Record Label 4AD. Nabil Ayers is a musician himself. He's a writer, and now he's got this new job title, author of the wonderful new book, My Life in the Sunshine. I just I just loved the book, Nabil. Thank you. It's so weird to talk to people who've read it. This is very new for me. <laughs> oh, gosh, yes. I, I You know, I'm sure. I... Uh, I have tabs in the book. I wow. I highlighted certain sections. Cool. <laughs> um, 
I read it nice and slow so that I, it could just really sink in because the book is just so enjoyable and wonderful and fresh and, and well, just thank you. so many nice parts of it, this family story. And it reminds me, you know, to ask you about the subject of genealogy, because that, that certainly is a theme through the book. It, as I talk to people about that subject, about genealogy, it always seems to, you know, surprise them a little bit about what they uncover. I learned, for example, about uh, a uh, in my family during some genealogy research about uh, a family member who had, who had served some prison time. And I wonder if you felt like it took courage for you to look at your family in that way after going through 23andMe and this, this uh, deep dive. Uh, one of your chapters is Roots Deep in Slavery. Did you find what you need about your family too? Yeah, I mean, the scariest moment was, I mean, my my mother has always known so much about her family and has, I've always known it. I knew her, I knew my great grandparents growing up and knew my grandparents really well. I've always known cousins, know tons of stories, have all the photos, you know, it's amazing. And so I love it. And I've always felt really connected to that side of the family. And my father's side is the opposite because I've never known him. I have almost no info and no stories and no photos and no nothing. So that started to bother me, I think, as I got older and as he got older. And I think, honestly, I thought, well, the chances of me learning more are decreasing as the days go on, unless I do something about it. So so I did 23andMe just to kind of see what happened. And I'm really glad I did. I ended up getting a family tree, which was incredible from my father's side, from a distant cousin, um, and learning so much about you know people who were enslaved. And it went back to the early 1800s in Alabama and crazy stuff. But the more interesting thing was finding it talked about the slave owner who was pretty easy to find online and kind of did some research and landed on this woman who I assumed and believed was the living descendant of the slave owner. And I decided to email her. And really, I wasn't angry. I wasn't looking for anything, money, reparations, apology even. She hadn't done anything. I just wanted information and I thought she might have it. And so that's what I said in my email. But that was pretty crazy email to write to somebody and say, I think your great, great, great grandparents owned my great, great, great grandparents. You know, can we talk? (laughs) It's a really heavy, crazy thing. And she emailed me right back and we struck up this incredible friendship and we're still friends and we email all the time. She hasn't done a DNA test. I, I think there's a good chance that we actually are related by blood. Um, but it doesn't matter. And kind of to the, the family point, I mean, I feel so close to her and she's family. And if we were to find out we're not related, it doesn't matter. Sometimes those connections, they can be beneficial in so many ways. It really just helps. Mm-hmm. It's always helped me to just feel those connections mm-hmm. because I get this feel of this this wonderful feeling of being grounded there too. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's helped me to look at that, to know a little bit about my roots and my family history. Yeah. And I want to talk about a little bit more of your history and, and that's the history of the record store. Sonic Boom mm-hmm. played an enormous part in your life. Started when you were uh, in that college age uh, group. Um, very successful record store in Seattle, Washington. Yeah, it's turning it's turning 25 this year. It's so crazy. <laughs> yeah, that is amazing. <laughs> right? I know. It's from last century. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that is crazy. Have you been back to the store? I mean, I know you're going to tour there as a result of the book. Do you get yeah, back yeah. to Seattle much? That'll be fun. 
not as much as I like. I mean, during the pandemic, I've only been back once for a wedding, which was great, but it was kind of a quick trip. But but normally I would go, I'd figure out a way to go for work once a year and get to catch up and see people and see what Amazon's done to the place. <laughs> yeah, really. You talk about an influencer. <laughs> yeah. And the story that I'd like you to tell us a little bit about starts on page 174. Oh. Of the book, you you write about seeing a therapist for the first time at age 34. So you'd been at Sonic Boom for a little bit. And a Sonic Boom employee mm. casually mentioned to you uh, while at work about an upcoming concert by Roy Ayers, your dad. Yeah. I wonder how that made you feel just to have the employee almost casually refer to this with your dad? That's a really great question. I think you're definitely the first person to ask me about that. And I do think that's it's a weird, important moment in the book and in my life. Because, I mean, my father had constantly been touring his entire life. He still is. He's touring right now. He'd been to Seattle, you know, I don't know, once a year, maybe twice a year, every two years, whatever it was, I would regularly notice his name in the listings at jazz clubs in Seattle. And I would always be like, oh, hmm, he's back. And seriously, that's all I would think. I think I trained myself to think that, but that's it. It would never go deeper. It was never like, oh, wow, maybe I should see him. Never did. And I I'd started going to a therapist because I, I think just because of a, a breakup, but it wasn't that it was that devastating. It was that I, my mother had been in therapy and I just always like, I was never threatened by it. There's this part of me that always kind of wished I had a reason to go to therapy. Um, I thought it was interesting and inviting. And so I think that was the time and I, I had good health insurance. And I thought, wow, maybe I could see a therapist now. <laughs> and so I started going to a therapist and really loved it. And of course, I mean, based on this story, the first thing she's like, you know, father, 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 what's going on, all that. And I told her everything. I, you know, my, my uncle's my father figure. My father's never been missing because he was never there. There wasn't a divorce. He didn't leave us. All those things that I always lean on. And she just kind of kept digging around. She was like, right, all that might be true, but surely there's more than that there. Maybe he's going to die someday soon. What would you do? What would that feel like? Are there things you need to, you know, was really good about asking me really important questions. And right around then, an employee at Sonic Boom said, oh, I see your father's coming to town. And it just hit me in a completely different way, which was all of the questions she asked. It was like, wow, so I'm... 35, which means he's close to 70, which, you know, hopefully he's going to live for a long time, but maybe it's actually time to try to get a hold of him. So that was, that was a real key moment. And your dad's 81 now. Is that right? Yeah, that sounds 80? right. Yeah. 81. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. Of course the music, everybody loves the sunshine is great. We're going to play that for our radio audience because that's such a, a beautiful song. And, yeah, and the book it. is, yeah, I, I do too. And again, congrats on the book. I know you're very busy, Nabil Ayers. Just one oh, final no, question for you. Happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I've, in, I've enjoyed this conversation. I, I I found the book, you know, just wonderful, as I say, you know, very much about race and your experience and and then the subject of genealogy. And so I I think our audience kind of skews a bit older. I'm I'm 65, and I think our audience oh, is wow, like in that great. 55. Oh, thank you. Congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My wife's a dancer, and I, I try to keep up. So I got to do what I can, I suppose. Um, maybe give our audience a little bit of advice about, you know, forging, jumping in, forging ahead, and kind of learning about the family history, because I do think courage is an important element in your book and maybe 
send us out with a message of kind of strength and courage. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, and I think this is probably applicable to a lot of people, it, I wasn't looking for a specific thing, but I found so many incredible things just from, from doing a DNA test and connecting with people that kind of, you know, one after another, these dominoes started to fall and they're kind of still falling. And it's all because I took what felt like a really scary risk and sent in the DNA thing. And of course the email to Karen was terrifying, but I think there's a certain point where it's like, what's, you can either do things like that or you can not, what, what are you waiting for? What's going to happen? What's the worst thing that's going to happen? And why not just jump in? At least that's what I felt like. Yeah. Well, congrats. Good that you did. And we're, we're grateful that you, that you have, I think it's a wonderful story. Again, the book is my life in the sunshine. Nabil Ayers has been our gift. The book has uh, been our guest today. The book has been a gift. The book is out June 7th. And, um, I just think it's, it's fantastic. A wonderful story. Um, I know you've been writing a little bit. We hope you write more. Me too. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been really great talking to you. Thank you. Nice to talk to you, Nabil. Thank you. All right. My thanks to our sponsor today, MD Hearing. Whether listening to our podcast, Great Jazz by Roy Ayers, or just talking in a crowded restaurant, go to mdhearing.com and use promo code NOB. Get to know the MD Hearing family and check out our show notes for direct links and more about our sponsor, MD Hearing. My thanks to Nabil Ayers and his generous time reading and his insights today. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe. Let's respect and honor all and eliminate assault on our people by eliminating assault rifles. Thanks, everybody. And I'll see you next week here on notold-better.com.